So let's open our Bibles, if you have one or you can watch on the screen, but to uh, Revelation chapter 9. And I would like to encourage you to either begin or to renew your commitment to one of those elements of the Christian life that we don't think about. We all know that whether therefore we eat or drink, we're supposed to do all the glory of God. We know we're supposed to be worshiping and reading the Bible and praying and, and you know, kind of the spiritual disciplines. But one of those commanded activities sometimes we don't think about very often. And that's what chapter 9 is about. In fact, the ninth chapter of Revelation is the illustration of what you see on the screen. That the serpent, the one you see in Genesis tempting Eve, the devil, the one you see in the wilderness tempting Christ, the deceiver that is constantly sowing false teaching in the church of Christ through his emissaries, the dragon, the one that's all the way through the book of Revelation that's trying to devour the woman's child and, and going after Israel, the nation, and the accuser, that's the one you see that's standing in front of God's throne with Job and saying, Job only serves you because he's healthy, or Job only serves you because he has all those kids, or Job only serves you because he's got all that money. And God says, no, he serves me because he's mine. That accuser of the brethren, and that dragon and deceiver and devil and serpent is Satan, who is just as active as you see him in the scriptures, and even more as we approach the end of days. And so what we're supposed to do is, number one, not be afraid of him, and number two, not ignore him. Those are kind of the two spectral, uh, you know, kind of bookends of Christendom. Some people ignore the devil, they don't even want to talk about it, and other people are scared to death. And I mean, and almost superstitiously don't want to talk about him or something might happen. And, and those two are, are, of course, the extremes. What we're supposed to do is simply resist him Stand fast and firm in the faith as a ministry that God has called us to. We are to be those who everywhere as the devil ranges throughout the earth like a roaring lion, he bumps into people like we should be who resist him strong in the faith and say, you are defeated. Jesus Christ has destroyed your power and we are to minister for the Lord. We're commanded to resist the devil. And I think sometimes we don't even know what that means or how to do it. And so that's why we're in Revelation chapter 9. So just to get where we are, one of the reasons God left us here as believers on earth is to be resistant to the devil, to stand against his plans. And God wants us aware that Satan is alive and well on planet earth. And we're neither to ignore nor fear him, but resist him. And that's the truth that the Lord illustrates so powerfully. When you get through this ninth chapter, you see why God wrote it. It's an eye-opener of the extent of Satan's nefarious, diabolical, evil, dark work among us. But Satan is constantly prowling the world, seeking to demote God, to derail God's work from being accomplished on earth among people. But we, his chosen people, are called to resist and stand against him. Now, we have confidence. Paul said that, that we are more than conquerors through Christ. John said, greater is he that's in us, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, through his indwelling presence, than he who is in the world, Satan and all of his hosts. But Satan is resisting God's work on earth today. And we see that all the way through Revelation. In chapter 1, it's illustrated as John sees the risen Christ while he's in prison. Why do you think John was in prison? Satan wanted to get the number one spokesman for God off 
the platform. And so John was hunted down and the last living apostle thrown on this prison colony. So chapter one is all about resisting what Satan was doing. John, so he did it, God called him to a writing ministry and he writes the one book that the early church preached through every word of. And so Satan was defeated. In Revelation two and three, Satan is seen kind of derailing the church and diluting it and defiling it. And, and Christ is calling the church to do what they're supposed to do, to resist his influence. Chapter four and five, the saints in the worship of heaven are rejoicing that they overcame through Christ's blood. The ones that are there uh, around the throne are saying that the lamb is the one that redeemed us so that we could resist and, and worship, uh, resist the evil one and worship the Lord. But we have found ourselves in chapter six. Now we're right in the middle of the dark part of the book. Chapter one, two, three, four, and five are kind of like beautiful passages of scripture. Six to 19 is very hard parts of the word. That's why uh, it, it's very hard to systematically go through this because we are not used to being aware of what Satan's doing. But it seems that God wants us to be aware. That's why there are so many chapters about it in the book of Revelation. And basically, God is laying out his plan for the end of human history. And it has these sequential elements. And, and so when you get, if you look down at chapter 9, the, the first four words say, then the fifth angel, and then the next word is sounded. So you can see where we are by this chart. First, we went through seven seals. That's chapter six through chapter eight, verse one. Then we started in chapter eight, these seven trumpets. That's what we see the fifth one right here. This, we've gotten to trumpet number five of seven. So there were seven seals. Then there are seven trumpets. We're on number five. There's gonna be two more. And then there are, if you see there, seven bowl judgments. And, and they're the crescendo, because what happens after the bold judgments is Armageddon, which is in chapter 16, verse 16, and then Christ's return in chapter 19. So basically, the fifth trumpet is telling us only God can defeat the devil and his demons. They're that strong. They're so powerful. There's nothing on earth that can resist them. We are frail. We are human. We are weak. We are insignificant apart from Christ in us. And that's what we are supposed to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. So chapter nine is a call for us to listen and to respond and to begin a life of resistance and standing against the evil one. Okay, chapter nine, let's all stand. And as we stand, you can follow along or look on the screen, but I want you to feel this entrance into a realm most of us don't know very much about, and most of us aren't very comfortable even thinking about, but God says, I want you to understand enough that you're aware of what the devil's doing and you resist him steadfast in the faith. Chapter nine, verse one, then the fifth angel sounded and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. Verse 2. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit, and the smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. That's a realm we don't know very much about. And God wants us to understand and respond obedient to him. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, I pray that you would challenge our hearts today, that we be all that you called us to be. We are in Christ more than conquerors, but we face a, a very powerful and a very malignant foe. 
And like Peter walking on the water, we take our eyes off you and we start sinking. And Lord, I pray that we would keep our eyes fixed on you, the author and the finisher, the perfecter of our faith, that we might resist our adversary, the devil, and that we would stand in the power of your might. Teach us how, and may we respond to you today. In the name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen. You may be seated. As you're seated, these two verses we're looking at are part of an intentional account. Uh, I was thinking as I was plowing through this. I mean, you think you've been in Revelation a long time. I've been in it 40 times longer because I, I spend about 40, 30 to 40 hours for every hour you get. So if you think it's long, and I, I keep looking at this and I think, how come, God, you spend so long on all this stuff? And then I step back and I think, maybe it's because I spend so little time, other than when we're parked here, really understanding what's going on all the way around us. So these two verses are amazing. And, and what they show us is that there's this place. Look down at verse 1. There's a place called the bottomless pit, and there's this star who is a supernatural person who is given the key to that pit. And the bottomless pit is filled with smoke like a furnace, and he opens the pit in verse 2. And by the way, when we get to verse 3, these horrific, hideous, locust-like demons come out. So what, what would be the benefit of knowing all that? Well, the Lord has what, what I call lessons uh, from the, the demon's location. And basically, it's showing that God is in control of all this. These demons are in that pit. Satan cannot let them out unless the Lord gives him the key. He is, is under the care and the constraint and the powerful sovereign control of God. Now you say, why doesn't he just put him in the pit? He will in chapter 20, if you read ahead. Satan is going to be consigned to that very same place. And the key is going to be turned, and he won't be allowed out. That's what the thousand-year millennium is all about, when the earth has no demon or satanic influence. And the sad thing is, if you read ahead, that they still go bad. Even in a perfect environment, humans are imperfect. And we don't need the devil or his demons to be bad. But when they're loose, we get worse. And that's what the lesson is he's showing us. Well, God wants the whole church to know this. And, and if you want to just flip back, in fact, if you're new with us or you weren't paying attention that week, I just want to show you why all of this is here. The book of Revelation is not written for Hal Lindsey, you know, to, to sell millions of copies of prophetic books or for, you know, any other prophetic person to, to get everybody's attention. The book of Revelation, it says, look at chapter 1. The revelation is a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not a revelation of the beast or the antichrist, nor of the devil, nor of the demons. It's not a, a revelation of the mark or of who the kings of the east are or of anything else other than Jesus Christ. He is the central focus of the book of Revelation. Now, all of these things interact to illustrate what he's doing, but Jesus is what is the point of the revelation. He is unveiled. And as he is unveiled, look what it says. God gave this, this unveiling of Christ to show us his servants. That's what God calls us. We are servants. That, that's how God looks on us. We are servants. The things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to the servant John, who bore witness to the word of God. So verse 2 says that all of this, even the, the hard parts, the dark parts, the demon parts, are the word of God. And it's the testimony of Jesus Christ 
and he wrote down the things that he saw. But look at us. We are blessed if we read and hear and keep these things. So basically, that brings us to what does God want us to read and hear and keep? What, what does he want us to see? What's the point of hideous demon locusts and this key and this bottomless pit? What is it that the Lord wants us to have? And God wants us to see how closely Satan's activities are tied to the events in this world. I mean, this morning, I, you know, after I got all done getting ready for this morning, I decided to see if the world was still in existence, you know, and so I turned on uh, the, the internet news, and I, I, first thing that came up on the screen was John Kerry's face. Now, when we used to live in the East, we lived not too far from him. I used to see him buying sandwiches, you know, uh, Mr. Senator himself, he'd come up in this huge black limousine and those people with all those ear things and they're, they have a bulge right here and you know what it is, probably in a <laughs> massive machine gun and, and they'd all go around him and he'd go buy his little tiny bag, but boy, he didn't look happy like he used to look when he bought his sandwich on the screen today because he has been negotiating for a long time with Iran trying to let them have atomic bombs and France said no. France? I thought we were Israel's friend. France said, no, they can't keep a reactor with plutonium where they could make an atomic device instantly. No. M Mr. Kerry was all sad. But, you know, we're reading that in the news, and it's just like, uh-huh, we had a shutdown, and now we don't know what's going to happen to food stamps, and Iran doesn't want to sign the treaty. Uh-huh. What does that have to do with the Bible? Everything. Chapter 12 of Revelation says that Satan's ultimate longing is to destroy Israel. And the chief country for 2,600 years whose demonic prince behind the country is called the Prince of Persia, one of Satan's highest lieutenants, is only desiring to destroy Israel. Because if you can destroy Israel, you destroy God's plan. Because God says, I am going to be sharing the gospel to the whole world through Israel during the tribulation. If you can get rid of Israel, there won't be any gospel sharing during the tribulation and there won't be any city that has all of these gates with Israel's tribe names on them and everything else if he can just destroy it the nation Israel because God says Israel will exist to the end I'm going to preserve them and Satan says then I'm going to get them you see what we're supposed to see is how much the events in this world are tied to spiritual realm activities. Now look at the two elements that jump out of these two verses. In verse 1, there's this supernatural person that star, falls like a star from heaven. Well, immediately you think, stars falling? What are we talking about? Meteorites? What? But then look what the next part of verse 1 says. To him. So he is a supernatural person. And that supernatural person is called Satan in the Bible. How do we know that? Because he is the one that's the leader of the demons. Now turn to chapter 12 of Revelation. We're going to look at it here, and then at the very end we're going to conclude with, with chapter 12. But I want you to see chapter 12 is the whole God's plan of the ages and showing everything he's doing, and, and we'll someday get there. But I just want to point a, a couple of parts out. Look at verse 3. And it says that a sign appeared in heaven. And behold, a great fiery red dragon. Now, we look up from our Bibles and we go, oh, now we're into science fiction or fairy tales or cartoons. Dragons? And, and immediately the book of Revelation sounds like it's detached. 
But just keep reading and you see that, that God is communicating a connection here. And I want to show it to you. Having seven heads and ten hordes and seven diadems on his head. Look at verse 4. This dragon, this fiery red dragon in verse 4, his tail draws a third of the stars of heaven and throws them to the earth. Oh. So in this verse, we meet a dragon. Then in the next verse, verse 4, his, this dragon draws a third of the angels under his control. But move down to verse 7. Because now we see that war breaks out in heaven. And Michael, we know who he is, the archangel. And his angels, we know who they are. We saw that a few weeks ago, the good angels. Fought with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels. So all of a sudden we see that this tale in verse 4 Taking a third of the stars is God explaining to us that of all of the angels, these supernatural creatures that never sleep, that are indestructible and so powerful we don't even understand how powerful each individual angel is, Satan got a third of them. And they, he drew them under his control. But it doesn't end there. Look at verse 9. Now... God connects Genesis with Revelation and everything in between. And here are the key points. And I, I just wrote them down for you. This is the Rosetta Stone. You know, the Rosetta Stone that, that uh, Napoleon's archaeologists found that finally we could decipher hieroglyphics. Sometimes the Bible's a little hieroglyphic because there's so many pieces scattered around. But all of a sudden, God explains it all. And what he says is, just track down through verse 9, he says, so the great dragon, so this fiery red great dragon we saw earlier in three, was cast out. Now look at all this. Satan is the dragon. Satan is the serpent of old. Now think Genesis 3. Think of Eve in the garden with the most beautiful creature, the, 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 this incredibly beautiful I mean, serpents after the fall and after the curse and sin are, are committed to being on the ground, and most people hate them. Uh, but they previously were beautiful, intelligent, talking, glistening creatures. And Eve was captivated by this creature who was being used as a channel through which Satan spoke. And he's called the serpent from old. So that's the Genesis 3, Eve deceived in the Garden of Eden. But he's, it doesn't stop there. He's also called the devil. That's chapter 4 of Matthew. That's the, the, the one who came face to face with Jesus and tempted him to disobey God. Same one. So the, the dragon is the serpent. He's the devil. He's also the wicked one. He is the one who, who John talks about, the whole world lies in the arms of the wicked one. And he is the one who, who wants to undermine and thwart and, and derail God's plan. But it doesn't end there. If you keep reading, the devil is Satan who deceives. He's the deceiver. He's cast to the earth. His angels were cast. Look at verse 10. Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the, and here's another title, the accuser of the brethren. This is the one that, that, that went to Job and, 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 and buffeted him and gave him boils and killed all of his kids and destroyed all of his, his possessions because he was accusing God of his saints. He's the accuser to God of the brethren of the saints. It's the same one. He is the, the dragon, the serpent, the devil, the, the wicked one, the accuser, and he is the fallen and twisted version of the greatest of all the angels, and his name was Lucifer, the the light. If you know Latin, Lux Lucius. Lucifer is the light-bearing one. He was the burning, bright, highest created being. 
And now he's warped and twisted as Satan. Here in one verse, God ties together the cunning serpent of the garden that drew mankind into sin with the accuser of Job, with the devil of Christ's temptation, with Satan the adversary, of all that God is doing. And all these various depictions are of Lucifer who fell to become Satan the devil. And they're united in one verse. It's like the Rosetta Stone. But all that to say that Satan is dangerous. I mean, I said all those things just to show you that all the malignity that, that covers all the chapters of the Bible come to a simple head. Satan is dangerous. No, we know that, but we just don't sometimes think what that means. So if you want to go with me, start in Matthew 13, and I'm going to run through the New Testament with you and just show you some of the dimensions we're supposed to stand against. We're supposed to be aware of. We're not supposed to be afraid of. We're supposed to resist everything Satan is doing. Now, what is Satan doing? One thing he's doing is he sows tares in the church. You say, what? Yeah, not everybody that goes to church, not everybody that, that, that says they belong to Christ do. That's part of Satan's plan. In fact, Satan is far more active, uh, I would put it this way, with a backward collar on than he is down in the red light district. The red light district, the drugs, the crack houses, prostitution, and all the murders don't really need his help. That just kind of has fallen humanity's way. Where he loves to work is transforming and masquerading in religion. And the primary place Satan has worked today is in the religious realm. If he can just get people to believe something slightly off about the Lord, like believe that Jesus is a great prophet, but he's not God, especially not God the Son, or believe that Jesus is a great moral teacher, but he is not the risen and reigning Son of God, or to believe that Jesus was not virgin-born, he just was like everybody else, but God really used him. I mean, there's so many variations. That Jesus is an angel, Jehovah's Witnesses. That Jesus is Satan's brother, Mormons. That Jesus is a great prophet, Muslims. That Jesus is a great moral teacher, Buddhists, Confucius, Taoists, you know, all of them. He's just one of many. See, if you just miss him, the reality, that's Satan's plan. Now, now look what it says in Matthew 13, 25. Satan is dangerous because he multiplies evildoers. While the men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. Now in this Jesus parabolic teaching, the wheat, the ones that bear fruit, are the believers. Tares look like wheat, but they don't have any fruit in them. Darnel is a, an example of a weed that looks very much like wheat. And the only difference is that wheat has wheat kernels and darnel doesn't. It's just a weed. And, and side by side, growing in the church throughout all the ages, do you wonder how there were the crusades and all the murder and pillaging and raping and everything that went on in the crusades? That emanated from the church in Europe. Were those Christians? No. They were, they were people that went to church and thought that just being in the building made them a Christian. And when they had the chance to go pillage and plunder and rape and murder and steal, they could under the auspices of the church. That's exactly. Satan multiplies evildoers. And verse 38 says, the field is the world and the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, the true believers, the born again ones, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. Doesn't that sound like what Jesus said in John 8, 44? You're of your father, the devil, the lust of your father you will do. Who is he talking to? The religious leaders of the temple in Jerusalem. He said, you guys are hanging around the temple, but you're not real. You're tares, you're false. You don't have the fruit of the spirit inside of you. You are sons of the devil. Verse 38, the field is the world, the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. 
that receive the engrafted word, that are saved. The tares are the sons of the wicked one. Verse 39, the enemy who sowed them is the devil. So where is Satan at work? Is he sowing crack houses? No. Is he sowing, you know, new methods of murdering and extorting money? No. He's sowing into religion and trying to promote religion and trying to, and, and you know the history of what has gone on, all of the horrors of organized religion that, that does not acknowledge God, his word, Jesus Christ, or his work on the cross. And that's where Satan is most busy, but he's not just there, and we're supposed to resist that. By the way, when I look for books, I, I love going to book sales at libraries and Goodwills and everywhere else. And if you want to know anything about a book, its veracity, whether it's worth, if it's about the Bible, just look at how they treat the deity of Christ and miracles and inspiration. Do they believe Jesus is the divine God in human flesh, virgin born and supernaturally raised from the dead? Or do they equivocate and kind of back away from that? Do they believe that what the Bible says is true historically, scientifically, everything else? Do they believe in inspiration? Do they believe in the miracles? Do they believe in the deity? And if not, they're a, one of these tares. They're a liberal. But here's the second one. Look at the next book, Mark chapter 4 and verse 15. Now again, Jesus is parabolically teaching, and, and a parable, parabole, is to throw alongside. Jesus threw truth alongside of something in everyday life. And, and the truth is what he's teaching, but he illustrates it from what he threw it next to. And he's, he's using sowing seeds as an example. And what he says is in verse 15, the four soil passage, he says, and these are the ones by the wayside. And, and that's as the seed goes, it goes alongside the path where the word is sown. And when they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. And he says the, the seed is the word of God and the soil is the person. And the, the word of God comes and, and rests on the soil. And, and before it can really take root, germinate, and put down roots and start bearing fruit, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown. Now that happens all the time. Have you ever been going door to door witnessing? You know, kind of canvassing, calling like we do sometimes here where we pass out the little bags and give a track and everything. And you get to someone and they're looking at you and they're listening to you and you're finally turning the Bible so that they can read, you know, uh, Romans 3.10 that there's none righteous, no, not one. And they say, oh, I'd love to read that. And they look down and they start reading it. And just at that instant, their pocket rings, you know, their phone rings or their telephone in the house rings or someone bursts into the scene or something happens, you know, child screams and something tips over or you know what I mean? Uh, or the TV, something happens and they, they look away and you never again get their attention. What do you think just happened? Oh, that was a fluke. When they hear, Satan comes immediately, verse 15 says, and takes away the word. Satan steals the word. He doesn't just do it for unsaved people. He does it for saved people. Saved people come and they get challenged by the word of God but before they act upon it with their will and, and do what God says, they get a quick you know, message or text or someone bumps into them or the, you know, they remember something. And that, they just kind of slide off. Okay, I'll take care of that in a second, but I've got to go do this. And this slides away. And you go, how did that happen? Satan steals the word. That's why the Bible says, while you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Do now. 
respond. Here's another one. Look at Luke 10. And this one is amazing. It's eerie. It sounds just like our text in Revelation 9. Because something that Satan is doing is resisting any advance of the ministry of the gospel. And in Luke 10, it says, the 70 returned with joy. Jesus had these concentric circles of closeness of those he was discipling. He had John that was the closest to him. Then he had the three, uh, Peter, James, and John. And then he had the, the 12. Then he had this group called the 70. Then he had a wider group, the 500, that we meet in 1 Corinthians 15. So he had all these groups. But the second to the outer ring he commissions and sends out into this amazing ministry and they come back testifying lord even demons are subject to us in your name so the ministry is advancing and look what happens jesus said to them i saw satan falling like lightning from heaven what was that i mean satan is going to resist at every hand any advance of the ministry of the gospel now he's not omnipresent but he can move around he's very mobile and he resists the advance of the gospel. Uh, now, most of those, I've said, we're all pretty comfortable with. But let's go here, because this one, most of us are a little squeamish about. We, we don't like to think about the implications of what this means, that Satan can invade hearts. But if you believe that Ananias and Sapphira were believers, and, and if they were, then it's fascinating what Satan can do even to a believer. If they're not, he still invaded their heart. But if they are, it's even more ominous to think about. But look what it says in Acts 5.3. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? Satan seems to have the power of mental suggestion. And when an individual becomes under his influence of that suggestion, they begin to speak and act in ways that, that do what Satan wants. He invades their life. Now, we have to be very careful because the Holy Spirit lives within us and seals us. But sealing is, is closely tied to putting on the armor and to walking in the Spirit and being full of the Spirit. What happens to the vast number of believers who do not have the helmet of salvation, they don't have the breastplate of righteousness, they aren't holding up the shield of faith, and they aren't wielding the sword of the Spirit? What happens to them? Well, they get carried along with everything that's going on probably like Ananias and Sapphira were. And in chapter 4, if you've read prior, Barnabas, the great encourager of the church, had a vacation home in Cyprus, a property or something over there. And he sells it and brings the apostles and says, you know what, what God is doing right here in Jerusalem is so strategic. I don't need a house in Cyprus. I want to park my earthly treasures right here. And he brings it and it just caused such awe and wonder in the church. Everybody wanted to start giving. And so Ananias and Sapphira said, wow, this is really great. And it's so exciting. And the Lord is doing stuff. We're going to sell our land and we're going to say we give it all to the Lord, but we're actually going to keep, you know, however much. And that's, look, look what Peter says. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie? How did they lie? They advocated a level of consecration and commitment and sacrifice and dedication that wasn't real. Aren't you glad the Lord doesn't strike everybody dead that appears to really be serving the Lord? But Satan is whispering to them and saying, you don't have to go overboard. You know, keep part of it for yourself. And that's amazing. Well, Satan author's suffering. Look at chapter 10. I mean, the implications of this are amazing. It says in Acts 10, 38, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit with power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. 
healing those oppressed. What's an example of that? Luke tells us about a woman that had an infirmity. She was bowed over. She, she looked at the ground. She walked around looking down. And she could not straighten up. And Satan, for 18 years, made her unable to stand straight. And Jesus came and said, stop that. You may stand straight. And he rebuked the devil, and she stood up. And everyone went, you know, sometimes we don't think about the fact in the final analysis, Satan is the ultimate source of all suffering. He's the ultimate source of all sin. And he is also immediately responsible for many individual cases of sickness and disease. And the New Testament is filled with examples of that. And what we need to realize is that Satan sows these false Teachers, Satan sows into the mind of believers things that cause them to be dishonest to the Lord. And Satan also causes physical suffering and sickness and disease. Look what he did to Job. Smote him with boils. And there's an element that we need to be resistant to evil workers, resistant to false teaching, resistant to the lies of the devil that, that want us to, to advocate we're more yielded to the Lord than we are. And also to resist him. For example, I, I get, like you, endless appeals to pray for servants of the Lord on the front line. And when I read of persistent, unbelievable attacks on their health, there are times that we need to resist and stand against Satan who authors suffering. He also blinds the minds of the truth. We know that from 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. When people hear the truth... They, we cannot convince someone to become a Christian because Satan has already blinded their minds. What we have to do is pray that the Lord pull back the blinders so the light of the gospel. So prayer is such a part of evangelism, uh, being prayed before we go, while we're going, and that the word will stick. But Satan blinds minds to the truth. He buffets believers. Look what he did to, to Paul. Uh, lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. Verse 8, I pleaded with the Lord three times to take it away, and he said, I'm not going to take it away, my grace is sufficient. Satan buffets believers, but we can have his grace that's sufficient to help us in our times of need. Satan hinders God's servants. I mean, this is unbelievable. Look what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. He says, I, even I, Paul, time and time again wanted to come to you. I wanted to minister, but Satan hindered me. Did you know that's why Paul was constantly asking that they pray that the gospel go forward, that he make it, that he be able to go. And that's why prayer allows us to be partakers in the ministries of all we pray for because they are going and we are praying that the way be made open for them that's why we stand with our missionaries that's why we stand with those that are in the ministry that's why we pray before we minister because satan is always trying to thwart and hinder and block and blockade what we're doing and we have to ask the lord to to break through and in his perfect will he does and finally satan is the tempter and Paul was so concerned. He said to the Thessalonians, For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know of your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. Sometimes we don't realize the power of temptation. If you don't think temptation is strong, talk to Moses sometime. His, his anger, his uncontrolled anger, made him forfeit going to the promised land. David, the man after God's own heart, his undealt with lusts in his life led him to break all ten commandments. And, and he had a lifetime of woe because of not dealing with the tempter. How about Peter? 
who could walk on water? Peter was so self-confident, like I'm afraid many believers are today. They say, I don't have to worry about that. You know, I'm a Christian. You know, Satan and all that stuff. And Peter was so overconfident, Satan sifted him, tempted him to the point he denies Christ three times. Well, let's end in uh, Revelation 12, because this is our entree to communion. You know, it would be awful if we just talked about how powerful Satan was. But look at verse 11. In the same context that the Rosetta Stone of Satan's identity is given to us, God also tells us that Satan is already defeated. That, that he is powerless before us if we are surrendered in step with the Spirit and obedient. And this is what it says, and it's such a beautiful um, expression. They, that's these tribulation saints, overcame him. That's Satan, the dragon, the devil, the deceiver, the accuser. Uh, you know, all of those, those aspects that, that are in the prior verses. They overcame Satan by the blood of the Lamb. What is that? That's faith. In Christ's sacrifice. You want to overcome Satan today? Believe the gospel. That we're forgiven. We're cleansed. There's no condemnation. There's no record of our sin. All stains are removed. No sin has dominion over us. Faith in what the blood of Christ accomplished. But it doesn't stop there. The second element. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb. Faith in the sacrifice of Christ. And the word of their testimonies. They hope in Christ. Yeah, I was talking to someone this morning. They came forward after the first service, and they said, but my life is a mess. I said, that's what hope is about. Hope means we don't have it now. We believe it. We see it. We're longing for it. We don't have it. None of us are in heaven yet, where everything is perfect. There's no sickness or sadness or sorrow. We have sickness and sadness and sorrow. Some people think if you walk with the Lord, you won't have sickness and sadness and sorrow. We have hope that holds us, the everlasting arms underneath us, but it doesn't take away the sickness and the sadness and the sorrow and of the struggles. But it doesn't end there. Look at the last part of verse 11. They had faith in the blood of the Lamb. They had hope in the word of the testimony of what Christ had done. And look at this. They did not love their lives to the death. What does that mean? They loved Christ more than anything else, more than their own lives. Do you see the faith, hope, and love Paul always talked about? The blood, they had faith. The the promises of Christ, they had hope. And they loved Jesus more than anything else. Do you know what communion is? It's when we say, I'm trusting in your blood. I am hoping in your promises. And I love you more than anything else on earth. That's how we resist the devil. That's how we stand firm in the faith. Let's bow for a word of prayer. And as we bow, the men are going to prepare to serve us. And we're going to get to actually tell the Lord we're trusting in his sacrifice. Father in heaven, I thank you for the celebration we as saints get to have today. Believing that your precious blood cleanses us from all sin. Hoping in all that you have promised by faith we believe that you are going to accomplish everything you said and that you are with us and that you are going to sustain us and your grace is sufficient even when Satan buffets us through life. We resist him and we love you. We love you more than anything else. And at this communion, we want to declare and proclaim and live that love through this offering to you. Thank you for this bread. 
this picture of Jesus, your body that became sin for us. We worship you as we partake this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray.